This is the ZMAR Podcast. Elite Benefits of America helps small and mid-sized companies with their health insurance programs. And now, your host, Butch ZMAR. Well, welcome back to the ZMAR Podcast. The special guest today is my son, Caleb, once again. Um, he is, uh, was not prepared for this. He was coming along for the ride, and uh, I threw a mic in front of him. So, welcome back to the show, Caleb. Thanks. Yeah. Glad to be back. Are you glad? Kind yeah, of. Kind of. Well, um, hopefully we'll get some good stuff out of you. Um, obviously, I know I recorded some podcast on some of the things that been going on in your life, which is the, the busted knuckle and the procedure and surgery to repair it. Can you speak on that and how things been and what, what it's like not being on the ice? It's tough. And yeah, it's hard to do things. Like I have to change up the lifestyle because I'm right-handed and it's on my right hand. So I got to do stuff on my left now. And Without being on the ice, I'm sure when I get back, I'll be unconditioned and be slower than everybody. But hopefully, I'll get there quickly. Yeah, hopefully. And and we're talking about just in a matter of days, if not um, just in the next week or so, we, we should um, get you back playing again. And so what was it like to go through that uh, surgery? Yeah, it was definitely weird waking up. Um, I felt like a drunk person. I mean, I couldn't speak normally or... And uh, definitely when I got in the operation room, I felt a bit dizzy, but it could be because the person injected something into me. But it was definitely an, an experience. Injected of uh, the unknown and yeah. then uh, the experience of being drunk without knowing what drunk feels like. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, well, life experiences, right? And so what? as soon as you get through... You know, we're going to start therapy today, and um, and the, after a few sessions, we'll see where things go. But what's one of the first things you want to do when you get full range again? Uh, play a game of hockey. Play a game of hockey? Yeah. You're not going to punch your brother in the face? No. No. Are you sure? I already did that. Oh. <laughs> Just with the other hand? Yep. Yeah, nice left hook instead of the right jab, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Um, uh, good stuff. Well, hopefully we'll I mean, even maybe we'll see what they say and get you in a, a game this uh, this weekend. Yeah. and uh, see how things go but obviously a little challenge is gonna you know um, among us but uh summer is not too far away and so uh any ideas what we're gonna do for summer probably just enjoying summer instead of the cold winter mm-hmm. and then show up to a ice cold ice rink yep somewhere yeah well, who knows where right and so one of your favorite movies that we've talked about is the movie midway and uh, what are what's one of your, that's the newer one? I think there's an older one from I don't know the '50s, '60s, whatever it was. But um, what's your favorite part in that Midway movie, the new one? Mm, I don't know. I like everything. I like how it's so realistic and detailed about everything, and just how they felt, and just the whole movie overall. Yeah, they did some pretty good acting in there. Yeah. One of my favorite parts is when he always pretends to, uh, to run out of gas right before uh, um, landing on the aircraft carrier. Yeah. Um, and and then all of a sudden at the movie, they had to throw in there that he actually did. Um, mm-hmm. Because why not, right? Because you've been practicing it the whole time. Right. It definitely was realistic. And then obviously the carrier, um, even just from my experience, uh, had a lot of similarities. So despite you know the number of years that had passed and I was on 
the second newest ship while I was in aircraft carrier, that is. And there was a lot of things still identical. Like, you know, I guess if it works, why change it, right? Yeah. Good stuff. I know you weren't prepared for this, but uh, uh, thanks for uh, joining us and uh, talking. We'll obviously have you back. Maybe we'll have more uh, preparation so you know what to say. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Today I'm going to share a shipwreck story and then we'll get into some things related to coming after the open enrollments for the employee benefit programs and what things uh, things you could do because um, I'm actually going to talk about getting blown off the shipwreck and then uh, just like uh, business, uh, you get always get blown off your mark and so you always have to readjust or get back on your feet. It happens all the time uh, on a regular basis and some people start giving up and that's what's happened with the benefits world where employers start just tossing up their hands. Brokers say that that is that is what it is and there's obviously solutions out there. Um, some of it is more difficult for those who are smaller, but you could certainly start making some strategies and at least being a little bit more aware on what things are occurring and control the out-of-pocket expenses. So maybe in some cases we can't control the premium, but we can certainly start controlling the outcomes a little bit. And, the, and this is true story, East Coast, uh, shipwreck diving, not for the military, but on my own recreationally. It was a 135-foot dive. It was, um, on this particular case, it was about eight-foot visibility underwater, so you couldn't see a whole lot. Temperatures were probably close to 60 degrees. And so uh, to me, that's fair in the Midwest. The, a lot of times it's colder. And so um, especially when you get to 130 feet, um, it could actually get as close as 38 degrees at the bottom. Um, so it could be a little bit really cold. But, you know, 60 degrees, you, you could probably do that in a wetsuit versus a dry suit unless you're extending your, your bottom time long enough. In this particular shipwreck, there was debris from a collision from in the fog. So some of it was... Um, military supplies scattered all over. A lot of people picked it up, even though it's slightly illegal to take anything from shipwrecks in certain areas uh, in the ocean. So even if you had to take a boat and even if you had to go out for an hour uh, on a boat ride, who knows how many miles that is, I do believe it's still within the U.S. territory and um, it's illegal to pull things, but people do. And so there's a lot of stuff to see. It's kind of a cool shipwreck um, scattered across the bottom. There's still pieces still intact. I've seen it when it's been really good visibility. And then on this particular day, it was pretty bad. But it's a learning experience I'm going to walk you through. And so we jump in the water. We go down the anchor line. Sometimes you see fish along the way, but you kind of make your slow approach. You don't drop like a rock. Um, you kind of have to make it easy. And then when we get down to the, the bottom of the shipwreck, it's, the visibility is very limited. So you could stay within the area. So you only have eight feet. And, and I'm estimating the it could have been 10 feet. It could have been six feet. But um, it's a number of years ago, and um, I didn't really measure it. But you have to stay within side of that around the, the anchor line in order to make sure that you don't go anywhere. Uh, if you're in current, it's going to be really hard to do that. And so one of the things we do as scuba divers is we tie off with a rec reel. And uh, rec reel is part of our toolkit. Um, and a lot of divers go without it. But I'm telling you, even if you could stick a small one, they call a finger reel in your pocket, it's going to save your life one day or just make the dive a little bit more enjoyable. And so you tie it off, you go out, you go back, you can uh, literally um, make circles around the whole thing. Uh, but the only issue with circles is you may catch other divers or other debris that you are not aware of if the line is not high enough. 
but you would go out and back to see more. And so um, the shipwreck uh, reel or the wreck reel that I had uh, probably had 300 feet of line. I did not go out 300 feet, but it allows me to go in and out um, and um, see different parts of the shipwreck without having to lose track of the anchor line because obviously that's the piece, uh, the, the line that I need to go back up to the boat. You know, it's enjoyable to move out and have a little bit of freedom, but you're still tethered to a line so you can get back. And because sometimes you could find some pretty amazing things. I know one time I did it with low visibility and I was out there for three years and and uh, only one and one time only we actually saw or I personally saw there was actually old army tanks and they were still sitting upright. It was a pretty amazing um, experience. Uh, they were small. Uh, uh, they didn't fit multiple men. I think it was just one, but these were either World War One or World War Two uh, tanks, and it was pretty cool to see uh, underwater. And the fact that they were still standing um, upright, meaning that uh, they were as if they were riding across the bottom of the ocean. So that was pretty cool. At the end of the line, um, the dive, um, I go back to the anchor line. I untie the the reel, and here's here's where the mistake comes in. And um, it was a lesson learned, but we do this, you know, pra- in practice. But it's going to be related to business here in a second. That so I'm on, you know, untying the reel, which is just this like a slip knot, and then uh, I'm tie- reeling in. I remember a little bit of a bird's nest, so I fix the bird's nest, and we we kind of have ways of the shipwreck or the wreck reel that we could actually take apart and put back together very easy so it didn't take a whole lot of time but by the time i looked up there was no anchor line so like what do i do now and uh, i'm looking around and i tried swimming to see if i could find it because every once in a while that'll happen because there's a you know slight current like they, they use knots out there but maybe it's just like one knot current and it kind of just drifts you away and if you swim around five feet or so, you eventually see a shadow of the anchor line. You can get back, but this one was a little bit stronger and uh, actually pushed me off the wreck. I did try to swim around to see if I could find it. Um, I had no luck, and I tried to even find uh, some other place that I could tie off the wreck reel so I could go a little bit further and still come back to a location where I was at just to see if I can find the um, the anchor line. And so, in a true logistic protocol that you would go through in a, an event that way is, or if that occurred is um, you would do what's called a lift bag deployment you would still use your rec reel sometimes you could have a smaller finger reel for this because it makes it a little bit easier a lot of people think lift bags are only to lift things off the bottom and that's not necessarily true in fact there are so many more uses to it um, and so you add a little bit of air to the the bag it's it flo- it's upside down so you put it up and the air travels up so you um, before you add air into it you tie it off to your rec reel you add a little bit of air uh, just enough to let it um, start moving to the surface the expansion of air to uh, the surface makes it a little bit easier to actually just add a little bit just for it to start the float and then as the air expands it starts accelerating to the surface the only issue and this comes with training is that if you had too much air it could actually uh, pop out of the water and you can lose the air and um, it starts floating back down to the bottom and you won't know for a while. But a couple of reasons for this is one is you created your own uh, ascent line is what they call it or you know anchor line in other words and so you're trying to use a line to get up. The other thing it does is it signals the boat that you're off the shipwreck but they could see it and they could still spot you. Usually it's a bright orange or bright red so they could see it uh, over the, uh, uh, the ocean and the waves. Um, it might bob up and down but at least you could see it and then you may start making your ascent up to the surface and so 
I took a slower ascent. I made some periodic stops just for basically hesitations for minutes um, at increments on the way up. Uh, there are tables for this, but um, a lot of times if you get enough experience and you know how long you've been down, you kind of have an idea. And then obviously I did a safety stop, which is usually at 15, 20 feet. Um, in this case, I definitely did it at 20 feet. Usually the surface waves still pound underwater uh, within 15 feet and sometimes even 20. So if you're at 15 feet, you could feel the up and down a lot more. And uh, for those who get motion sickness uh, like I do, it's not really a, a great thing to keep focused uh, and get nauseous. But um, in this case, I definitely stayed at 20 feet and did my safety stop and then and come up to the surface. And this is just ideal protocol, and I'll walk you through what really actually happened. Um, and so and when you get to the surface, uh, you usually would just wait for the boat to come over to you. Uh, you float on the surface, you keep your signaling device up. A lot of times they have another thing, you usually carry another signaling device, they call it uh, a signaling buoy, or um, there's a number of names. And it usually skyrockets above the water about six feet, and so it can, be seen over larger waves and so this would signal the boat and then once they get other divers out of the water and um, somebody's keeping an eye on you they'll actually drive the boat over to you so you don't get exhausted and so to walk you through what actually occurred and this happens in business all the time when we when we literally get blown off our, our game or we miss our goal or or the open enrollment in this case is definitely not what you expected and never is. And, and it's just pure um, panic mode in a lot of cases. So in, in this case, in this real event, I had a slight panic attack. I wouldn't say it's an attack, but just like anxiety that occurred. I tried to do a compass reading and dummy me because I wasn't focused. Um, the shipwreck, is, uh, the, especially the older ones, produce a magnet. And so the compass was off, and so I didn't realize that right away. I'm trying to, because I had some idea on coordinates, and so I had an idea which direction I may be able to head, and, and we had an idea which way the current was pushing us. So I just took a guess, and sometimes that works, and I've used that plenty of times in the past, and sure, it might be a 50-50 shot, but eventually, some of the times you actually end up hitting your mark, even just blindly, uh, just off of um, just little navigation skills that you might be able to pick up through experience and so after a few minutes when i realized this i was like well that isn't going to work and so i decided to ascend up without doing the lip bag uh, deployment which created harder for I, I made it harder just to ascend um when you when you move up in the water come to the, the surface from the uh, from your dive without a reference point such as a wall or a line it's very hard uh, to maintain buoyancy and control your rate of ascent, and it could cause other issues such as the bends and whatnot. And so it's highly recommended always have a reference point so you can judge visually on how you're moving up. But, you know, with practice, you could actually do a pretty good job. Um, some scuba divers will have wrist-mounted uh, computers so you can see what your depth are. Some are not, so you're going to have to pull your computer out or your depth gauge and try to keep track of it as you go up. Analog gauges are usually delayed, so by the time that uh, uh, you realize you're going too fast, it's already, um, not I wouldn't say too late, but it, it's already at a faster speed, so it's a little bit more panic to control it. Uh, but I, in this case, I did fine and uh, obviously came up to the surface. I increased uh, air into the what they call the buoyancy control device and floated around but uh, they were about one football field away from me 
And so I decided, because they were still waiting for divers, to swim over to the uh, boat, and all it did was exhaust me. And uh, I should have just waited and just keep the signal and maybe drift or kind of um, what they call flutter or move, try to move with the current in a direction that uh, you could get over to the ship or the boat, rather, the dive boat, without having to put a whole lot of exhaustion. This usually ends up in bad news. And uh, I was fine, but I was still exhausted and tired and obviously coached through by the captain of the boat of what I did wrong. And there's a lot of lessons learned, and that's what comes with experience. Uh, I'll probably never do, or I'll most likely never do that again. I, uh, that's my, my imagination, because since then I've actually done that, not only just in um, practice, but we've had other events. And maybe on this podcast I'll talk about some of those scenarios that occur we've had uh, out of air uh, situations we've had blown hoses we've had missing divers and unfortunately we had some uh not some just a couple fatalities over the what 25 30 years that i've been diving and so it does occur um and there's obviously uh lessons learned from all of that and we can make dive uh scuba diving a little bit better so uh, moving it back to business because that's what we do. Um, we're always blowing off the shipwreck in this case, right? So there's always something that derails. It could be taxes. It could be employees. It could be products. It could be shipping. There's always something going on. And when it comes to benefits, uh, it's almost like some people prefer never to leave the harbor and go scuba diving. They'd rather just stay on the shore and, uh, and hope for the best. But uh, usually it doesn't um, work out that way. And there's many reasons why, partly because uh, anything in business and life, uh, usually positive results only are caused by activity. And so you have to um, have some type of protocol or checklist or some type of engagement to kind of keep you moving towards the goal. And in this case, goal could be the open enrollment process. It could be the uh, compliance side. It could be a number of things. So we're going to walk through that. So there's a lot of things that um, come do it. People dread it. People uh, avoid my phone call in the, uh, during their open enrollment or right before when we can review the renewal and see whether the premiums are, what kind of plan options are available. And it can, um, there's people that avoid me. And, and finally, I'll catch them. And uh, they're not doing it to avoid me. At least I don't think so. But uh, a lot of cases, they're just, they're just trying to avoid a daunting task of dealing with premium increases that they feel like that they lost control of and they really don't have any control. And of course, the task that gets involved of getting things out to the employees in a timely fashion, collecting the enrollment forms, which is um, tedious uh, at best. And then the employees never fill it out right, most of them. And there's always missing information such as date of hire or their birthdays or, and I tell you, there's employees that feel like they're they're filling out a form to ensure their family, and they only put their own information. They don't put their spouse or uh, kids on there. Um, so there's always missing items. And then even on the employer level, the employer's busy, HR's busy, CFO's busy. They're always missing something, whether it's um, payment information, uh, they're behind on their payment, uh, or they missed information on the application. It could be tax ID numbers, a number of things. And then you also got payroll updates. So you have to hurry up, do the open enrollment, collect all the forms, get everything in. And then once everything settles, you're going to have to update payroll because you have to make sure if, if any changes are in the payroll amounts, one, the employees are um, notified what those changes are, up or down. Um, that is a requirement as well as um, you know, just so you could deduct the appropriate amount out of their paychecks. It, it, 
and just walking through that, I feel a little exhausted, right? It's just, it's just crazy on all the stuff that has to go involved in this. And it's very uh, tedious in, in a lot of ways. You know, employers make it really hard. They really do. They put roadblocks in place uh, to make it harder instead of following a protocol or a procedure that ends up making outcomes a little bit easier to deal with and not so exhausting. And brokers make it hard. I'm, t- I'm telling you, my competition out there, peers in a, my industry, they make it difficult. And it's harder and harder as time goes on that um, they just, you know, because they don't want to make things easier for everybody else, either because it's a financial thing or something else they got to manage. Um, sometimes we have to eat the cost and they're not willing to do it. Um, and there's another reason. They just make it more difficult overall. And, and it's really hard. Hey, gang, ever wonder what it's like to be a small business owner? It's confusing. Weird expenses coming out of nowhere. And when you throw in health insurance, forget it. Nobody understands how that works. If you own a business, big or small, it's one of the biggest expenses you have all year long. And yet, we all wait until open enrollment at the end of the year, and then we think to ourselves, next year, next year I'll get a jump on it. And then it's another year of paying way too much. If you're a business owner, big or small, HR representative that wants to impress the boss, give Butch Zemar of Elite Benefits of America a call. Save yourself or your boss thousands or even tens of thousands of dollars a year. Reach out to Butch right now, 708-535-3006, or shoot him an email, butch at elitebenefits.net. And be sure to check out the Zmar podcast. Don't wait till the last minute. Put Butch Zmar to work for you now. So what I my plan on this podcast is actually to make 2023 a little bit easier for you. And so... Um, you know, first off, let's create a protocol that works, right? And so if you don't have one now, then talk to your broker, um, HR, um, and see what you guys can come up with. If you're at capacity or you don't know where to go to next and your broker is not providing any more input, you have to seek elsewhere, get a second opinion, call our office, and uh, we'll figure it out. Every company has issues with their healthcare costs, everyone. And so even the ones that figured it out a way to reverse the trend, they're still dealing with a lot of issues. And so, um, and, and there are times where all of a sudden they're redu- reversing the trend, the premiums are going down and all of a sudden they hit a rut and they go back up. And so every, you're not the only one, but there's so much more you could do. Even if companies are too small to do anything, the risk is too high. There are so many other ways that you could reduce costs, not only for you, but for the employees out of pocket expenses. So, So let's walk through some things. Um, One is definitely do a first quarter review. Let's talk about what happened in the open enrollment. Let's figure out what went wrong and how we could prevent it in the next open enrollment. And make sure you take notes so you can reference it in the fall. And this is not even using any broker. This is just in-house. How do we make this better? I tell you, there's time and time again where employees find excuses not to do something. Uh, In one case, we actually had... Uh, open enrollment start before this guy left uh, on vacation with his family. And then he comes back and the open enrollment already closed. He didn't elect benefits. And so the employers bugging me to open up the open enrollment or allow him to submit the application just because he missed it. And they're like, well, we can't blame him. He was on vacation, but he had four days before he went on vacation to do this thing. And so that's failure on the employee's part. So how do we make that more obvious to the employees to make sure that's right? And so, and then the other thing is, how do we prevent issues with the uh, enrollment forms? How do we eliminate chasing down people because they forgot information? There's 
simple ways to do this, even if you're still doing paper versus electronic applications. And so uh, there's definitely different ways that you could actually do it. Cost is usually the big issue. Uh, again, I, I talk about this over and over again. There's ways that you can start walking through and start lowering cost. And even if it just starts with the bottom line of out-of-pocket expenses, uh, if you don't have control over premiums. But I tell you, time and time again, you could get a resource uh, broker that um, will be able to walk you through it, a consultant, uh, because you might have other opportunities you're not aware of uh, or they don't know about and you're not sure. And so certainly get second opinions. Um, I'm not saying the deviate from your loyalty. I'm just saying that you have to look out for you and your employees. So definitely find more resources. Another thing is definitely streamline the process, make updates where it might be easier. Uh, and then enrollment is so much easier when you move it online. Uh, but some people are like, well, people don't have computers and there's all these things that come in, uh, involved. But I, I'm telling you more and more people adapt to it, especially when you give them no other choice. Uh, it's so much easier for everybody else. And then employees can actually go back and actually reference the information later um, and if needed, um, because they might say, uh, no, I included my spouse on there. Uh, and the insurance is saying, no, you didn't. You could go back and look at that. Or you could look at um, the plan documents or how the coverage is going to work and where the copays are, whatever it might be. The only thing we could work on is compliance. Uh, get ahead of the curve because I'm telling you, the penalties are coming. The Department of Labor is coming after you. IRS, in some cases, small groups don't have 125 documents in place for pre-tax. They just claim that they do or out of ignorance they do. Um, but you certainly definitely need some compliance issues uh, to take care of to avoid those audits and make things a little bit easier for the next open enrollment going into 2024.